When people think about DC, I think they picture the National Mall, the monuments that they've seen on TV, and they picture Capitol Hill. They picture the proceedings they might see on C-SPAN or CNN, and that's kind of the end of it. And DC is really a dynamic city that's still very black and brown, that encompasses so many different cultures and influences. It goes way beyond the National Mall, and I would want them to see the very human aspect of this city. When people think of DC, I think they think of the swamp. Um, and I actually always love to tell people it's a beautiful, harmonious place. There are no swamps here. It's also a place where you think of partisan gridlock, people yelling at each other, uh, protesting, but it's also a place of harmony uh, where people truly live side by side. I think when people think of DC, they think of the surface level aspects of DC, but there's so much more that's kind of like always brewing underneath. There's also an insane amount of creativity. A lot of people who are moving in who are artists and creators and, and obviously restaurateurs who are kind of bringing something new and interesting to the city every day. And I think that that's also why DC is a city that's kind of on the rise, especially in terms of the restaurant culture. People are standing up and taking notice that it's a city that's contending with some of the biggest food cities in the world, like New York and LA, because there's that insane multiculturalism that really makes it stand out from the pack. You know, it's a city where normal people meet the people you see on CNN or Fox News or MSNBC. One time I was going to work on the bus and I was at Stanton Park on Capitol Hill. And it's a cold, rainy day. And I'm like, man, that guy out there doesn't have a jacket on and doesn't have an umbrella and is just like walking around in a circle. And then I double take and I realize that it's Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders is on the corner with his phone trying to hail an Uber in pouring rain, no jacket and no umbrella. And I immediately what struck me was, my God, this could be our next president because it was at the time when the Democratic primaries were happening. And it's just a funny moment where you are going to work or you're doing something and you kind of look up and you're like, oh, I think I know that person. And I think once you get beyond the like political epicenter of DC and into some of the neighborhoods, you quickly realize that this is one of the most livable places in the country. Um, and it's why I've called it home for more than three decades and will continue to for the rest of my life. So we just heard from three writers very familiar with Washington, D.C. We're going to be hearing from them a lot more a little bit later, but I wanted to give them a chance at the top of this episode to tell us what they think the rest of the country and the world gets wrong about our American capital. While talking to them, it seems like these same words keep coming up. Community, creativity, this sense of inclusiveness and multiculturalism. It's all a far cry from some of the stereotypes people might have about Washington, D.C., the city is technically the center of our country, and so many people, myself included, are painfully uninformed on what it's actually like to live or even visit there. So for reasons that should be painfully obvious, we wanted to make this episode celebrating DC and some of the things that make the city, the real city, so special. We've got punk music, 
We've got a spread of beach bod busting bakeries and desserts. We have the owner of Ben's Chili Bowl, who is pretty much my own personal hero. And we have a whole lot more. I'm Will Fulton, your own personal Yankee Doodle Dandy, and this is Thrillist Explorers. Hi, I'm executive pastry chef Paola Velez, and I live in Washington, D.C. I'm the co-founder of Bakers Against Racism. I work at Maidan and Compass Rose, and I founded La Bodega Bakery. That's kind of a lot. Today we take to the streets in defense of black lives. Bakers Against Racism is an organization that was founded in June of 2020. When the protests started happening within the scope of the killing of black people, we couldn't withstand to not do anything anymore. And when we founded Bakers Against Racism, we didn't expect to go viral. All it took was a Google folder and goodwill to raise over $2 million to date. It's just so amazing um, to see how our DC community rose up, but also worldwide. So thank you guys for baking against the machine. I guess my opinion on the landscape of bakeries here in Washington, D.C., there is one connecting thread, which is community. Community, 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 community. So when we wake up and we're about to have our morning cup of coffee, I can imagine the people from Van Ness almost rely on bread first. Bread First is just the pillar of our DC bakery community. They just have withstood so much and are just able to give back to the community and kind of inspire us to do and reach for more. Another one that I really enjoy is called Rose Avenue Bakery. Rose Ave Bakery is a modern Asian American bakery. They take flavors from what you would assume is their childhood, growing up in the Philippines, and kind of like meshing those two worlds together. You know, you have like fluffy mochi donuts, ube galore, passion fruit oozing out of beautiful quinamons. It lifts me up and like fills me with joy to see a bakery like that in Washington, D.C. One that is unapologetically themselves, you know, nothing to really prove. Another bakery that I love is called Yellow. Yellow Le Cafe is a Lebanese-inspired bakery that is actually a part of Albi, Chef Michael Rafiti's restaurant. And they are doing really, really awesome things with these flavor profiles. You have a croissant that could be laced with sitar or a honey and apple coffee cake. It just kind of like gets an electric shock of flavor with these Middle Eastern slash Lebanese inspired profiles. Another place that I actually frequent quite a lot is Salu Bakery. Salu Bakery is one of those bakeries that you don't understand how somebody could have thought of it and how somebody could make it so beautiful and so simple at the same time. It's intricacy and simplicity all meshed up into one croissant. 
Their flower actually rotates quite often based on the mid-Atlantic availability. And I mean, if I could afford it, I would use all of their flower all of the time in my restaurants, you know, but for now, I just eat a lot of croissants. And last but not least, I would love to talk about pastry chef Joni Scott. She actually is a corporate pastry chef now in Baltimore, but she does local kind of one-off macaroons and cakes. And she's also very young and to see her trajectory is so amazing. Washington DC is filled with such innovative, creative people. Most of the time when you look at us outside in, you think about the Capitol, you think about the White House, but inside of our communities, we run deep with passion and we sustain each other and we love to eat good food. You would think the restaurant scene would be stuffy and very like prim and proper and polished. There's parts of that, but also you have these jolts of creative expression within the industry. You know, you have Ethiopian food, you have Jamaican food, you have a great, amazing Salvadorian population that makes pupusas that you wouldn't even believe. But more so, it's the accessibility to so many diverse cultures that you wouldn't have even expected to be in a city that isn't even represented by Congress. Everybody who works in the culinary industry in this town actually eats in this town too. We all love supporting each other. And it's just so exciting to see our city get the recognition that we've been working towards. So thanks, DC. Jess Mayu is Thrillist Washington, DC editor. And while she hails from nearby Baltimore, she grew up heading to the district to see live music all the time. If you pay attention to this type of stuff, You'll know Washington, D.C. has an eclectic and wildly impressive music history, literally shaping genres as diverse as go-go and hardcore. And some of the country's great remaining music venues still live in the capital city. Jess has our next story about the past, present, and future of the sounds and places that help define music in Washington, D.C. I was so lucky to have a mom who loved music. And she taught me from the time I was a little kid. She said, honey, you got to go to the worst parts of town to see the best music. That was Audrey Fix Schaefer, longtime staffer at the iconic 930 Club, which opened in 1980 on F Street in Northwest D.C. As an angsty teenager myself growing up in Baltimore, I drove down 95 a lot to catch shows at 930 Club, Fort Reno Park, or the now-shuttered Black Cat. And for the most part, Audrey's mom's theory was pretty true. When you think of America's great music cities, you might think about Nashville or New Orleans. You probably don't think about Washington, D.C. People do have the misconception that everybody in D.C. are just working for the government and that there's no heart and soul. You know, when I moved down from New York, that's what I thought. But... What's interesting is that a lot of people come to D.C. for the music. There are so many beloved venues that have either been around for 50 years or five years. The D.C. punk scene was defined by bands like Bad Brains, Minor Threat, Rites of Spring, and Scream, in which a pre-Nirvana Dave Grohl played drums. 
I think when most people think of DC punk, they think of Ian MacKay with Fugazi. One of my favorite musical memories was seeing Fugazi at Fort Reno in 2002, which turned out to be their last U.S. show ever. And Henry Rollins. Fun fact, Henry Rollins was a roadie for Teen Idols before eventually becoming the lead vocalist for a little band called Black Flag. It was very testosterone-driven, and the rooms were tight and sweaty and smelly, and stage diving started there. A lot of the music came with an anti-establishment ethos, a contempt for capitalism, and a totally inclusive DIY ethic. But it was also the type of anger about how people were being treated, and unfortunately, so much of the themes are true today. People had a lot of angst and anger and expressed it in a type of music that they found to be liberating. Here's journalist Shauna Kenny. I consider myself sort of a second generation of punk. Her book, Live at the Safari Club, gives a firsthand account of DC's hardcore scene from the late 80s into the new millennium. You know, the political climate itself, Reagan was in power, we're in the center of power of the free world. And so politics were very much in our faces. That's what's cool about the punk scene. They showed us that anyone can do it. You don't need the corporations. You don't need lots of financial backing. You don't even need permission. So it was just a mishmash of culture, but The actual punk shows were just sweaty, fun, energetic, sometimes violent. They could be three or four hundred people deep, but it was just a pulsing ball of energy. I love that. That sounds exactly right. And I'm sure the smells varied. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of stinky boys. (laughs) But these hardcore shows were certainly not the first or only times bands in the city would play to packed, sweaty houses all night. There's another genre intrinsically linked with D.C., go-go, which I assure you has absolutely nothing to do with Belinda Carlisle or knee-high boots. I think punk and go-go are parallel scenes in D.C. Punk and go-go bands played together a lot in the early 80s. Go-go got started in earnest by artists playing beats on bucket drums or traffic cones on the streets of D.C. before being popularized by bands like the Young Senators and the legendary singer-guitarist Chuck Brown whose likeness you can still see today painted on the side of Ben's Chili Bowl. And then, of course, there's Trouble Funk. Original Go-Go is, if I was to compare it to something, I would say African rhythms. This is Tony Fisher. Yeah. A.K.A. Big Tony. (laughs) Bassist and frontman for Trouble Funk. And here's a very brief clip of one of their best-known songs, Drop the Bomb. Any type of genre of music that has percussion, you can relate it to go-go. It's a very unique music that was originated from Washington, D.C., and Chuck Brown is definitely the one that we credit for planting that seed. He might be one of go-go's most notable musicians, but he found the scene, like so many do, pretty much by accident. After the cabaret, I went outside to, to get in my car, and I noticed there was a line going up the side of the building. Well, what is this line doing out here? 
So I went back in and I talked to the guy, Ted Hawkins, which was the owner of the Club The Burn at the time. And he was like, well, we're having this go-go from 12 to 6. And it's like, go-go? What is that? So he's like, if you like to stay around and check it out, you can. So that's what I did. Uh, at the time, go-go was not recognized as a music. It was recognized as atmosphere, a place to be. That hook line, go-go, originated from Smokey Robinson. Going to a go-go. Chuck Brown took that word and just gave it a whole nother meaning. So then came the atmosphere, then came the go-go beat. So when I heard that, I instantly connected with that. And it was like, I knew that was something that I wanted to do. Even if you don't think you've heard Trouble Funk, you've probably heard Trouble Funk. Since one of their most well-known songs, Pump Me Up, has been sampled many, many times by hip-hop artists like Beastie Boys, Dr. Dre, and LL Cool J. But the go-go scene and the hardcore punk scene, as different as they may seem... I think we had a lot in common. It's just like two musics that originated out of Washington, D.C. And like so many of these stories, we can trace it back to the 930 Club. That probably is the most fun place that I ever had to perform. One day, Seth, the owner of the 930 Club, got this brilliant idea to have a show with Trouble Funk and a hardcore band. And man, that was crazy. It was just something about it. It was something about the atmosphere. The dressing room is like, oh my God, you had rats running all over the pipes and stuff, man. And <laughs> it was just a, a wonderful place to play in. Many of the venues that Tony used to play in have closed, but the 930 Club remains. And it truly is one of those venues that just feels different. But to describe it... Here's Audrey again. There's no sign on the outside of the building, so you already have to sort of be a cool kid to get in there. But everybody's a cool kid. The sound is perfection because that is crucial. And the sight lines are perfect. It doesn't matter where you stand. The other thing about the place is the vibe, no matter whether you are on the stage as the artist or you're in the audience, that it's magic. And the bands cannot wait to come and play it because that's kind of their home away from the home. But of course, the COVID-19 pandemic has completely gutted the live entertainment industry. All of the independent venues across the country are in that very same situation, we could be looking at the precipice of a mass collapse of the industry. And that's not being dramatic. That's just doing math. The 930 Club is one of the founding members of the Independent Music Venues Association and helps get the Save Our Stages Act in front of Congress. The act earmarked $10 billion to venue owners, promoters, and other music professionals for rent, utilities, mortgages, and PPE, and was folded into the stimulus bill passed by Congress and signed into law in December 2020. And that sense of community, inclusion, and support, it's still there in the D.C. music scene, even at the highest levels. Dave Grohl wanted to do a birthday party for Big Tony, and it was billed as a birthday party, but it was actually a fundraiser for Big Tony because he uh, needed an organ transplant. 
And so Dave introduced the show, then Scream played, and Dave was on drums, and it was just so incredible. What a beast. And then uh, Trouble Funk had this fantastic set where all you wanted to do was dance for hours and hours and hours. And uh, then after Trouble Funk, Dave comes back on, and he said, I'm going to play you a few songs. And partway through the first song, Foo Fighters started to walk on stage. And at one point in the song, the lights go up and you see the whole band there. And the crowd went nuts. He said, I said I was going to play a few songs. Who am I kidding? I'm going to play a few hours. Oh my gosh, I just got chills thinking about it again. And for an even more perfect example of this union of DC music legends, check out the opening of the Smithsonian's African American Museum in 2017, where Trouble Funk and Dave Grohl performed at the Kennedy Center in front of the Obamas. The music of Washington, D.C., its soul is rooted in go-go music. It's, yes, it is. And I tell you, it's a story about that show that a lot of people don't know about. I lost my kidneys back in 03, 04. And I was on dialysis for 13 years. I had just gotten out of the hospital from getting a transplant. When Dave Grohl called me and asked me that I want to be a part of this, it was an opportunity that I could not pass up. I knew it was a once in a lifetime opportunity. I still had drain bags taped to my leg on that show. I, I wasn't supposed to have been up on that stage. I, I wasn't fully recovered, but you know, I'm a soldier. I work very hard to make this shit look easy. So yeah, people that don't know better might call DC boring or conservative or a city with no soul, but natives of the district and true punk and go-go loyalists associate it with sweaty clubs, tracks turned to 11, and dancing until long after the metro closes for the night. Let's hope we can all safely get back there someday. And if there's one thing I know about the music and the musicians in DC, it's that giving up was never an option. There will be times where they have to damn near drag me on the stage, but once I hit that stage, it's all good. It's like nothing can defeat me, nothing can beat me. I may feel like I've been been in a dog fight afterwards, but you know, my music is my medicine. Okay, in our description, you can find links to help support venues like the 930 Club, various go-go bands, and a whole lot more. And honestly, go stream some Trouble Funk records, or better yet, watch some of their live shows on YouTube. You won't regret it. It will get you through your work week. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but we've got a lot more coming up. Stick around. Ben's Chili Bowl isn't just the most famous culinary institution in Washington, D.C. It's one of the most important restaurants in America. Over the summer, as the pandemic hit the industry hard and Black Lives Matter protests were held in every state in the country, we spoke with Virginia Ali. She and her late husband Ben opened the Chili Bowl in 1958. She's seen the country and the city changed around her. And she's seen Ben's transform from a small business into one of America's greatest restaurants. We felt that no look at Washington, D.C. would be complete without hearing Virginia's voice. So in this next segment, we're using some clips from that interview conducted in June of 2020. If you want to hear the full call, there's a link in our description. But for now, here's Virginia Ali. 
my husband came here from Trinidad to matriculate at our universities, and of course, he worked his way through school back in those days, working in restaurants. I was working at an industrial bank down the street, and so we met, and we wanted to be married, and we wanted to be self-employed, and he thought that a restaurant idea would be a great one. And uh, he had this great chili recipe, so that's how the idea was brought up. And then we needed to find the ideal location. New Street was known as Black Broadway back there with our African American Entertainment Center. And we thought if we could get something even near there would be perfect. We opened on August 22nd. It looked very modern for that time and we had late hours. We opened at 11 o'clock and closed at 3 a.m. And right away we were accepted in the community and the rest is history. Naturally, the late night hours and incredible hot dogs made Ben's an ideal spot for the after club crowds. There were jazz clubs, nightclubs, music halls, restaurants, everything. And most places closed at 2 a.m. Even entertainers that performed downtown, when they completed their assignment that evening at 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning, then they head up to our Black Broadway Street, and then Chilibo was open to receive them. Including some musicians you might have heard of. You know, I'm a people person. I enjoyed meeting Earl Garner or Ramsey Lewis or Duke Ellington or Cab Calloway, Sammy Davis, Miles Davis, all of them. You know, they were all in and out of that area and in and out of the Chili Bowl. It was just a happy time. And it was during this time that Ben started to become a hub for media members too, looking to take the pulse of the community. The media used it as their place to get the African-American perspective on things during the days when we were a separated city. It could be the new quarterback for the Redskins. It could be the new manager. It could be something political. It could be anything. And the media would just pop by Ben's, not to see me, but to see my patrons, to see the guests, and to listen to them, to talk with them about what's going on in the city at the time. So it just evolved, I think. And would you say, you know, was that always important to you and your family? Was it something that you wanted when you started the restaurant to not only, you know, serve food that people like, but to be a gathering spot, to be a part of the community? It was most important to me because I enjoy people. And for me, I feel like I'm inviting them in my home. And therefore, you want to be warm and welcoming and you hope to give them good service and to make them feel comfortable and happy. We had the jukebox blasting all the time. So there's a happy mood there and great food. And that always brings people together. And Ben started to get national attention as one of the most frequented businesses for one of the civil rights movement's most prominent leaders. Dr. Martin Luther King had a satellite office at 14th and U. And so whenever he was in town, He'd make his way down to the Chili Bowl, and we have an opportunity to sit down and have a little conversation and hear about his dream. I just was happy to see him and so proud of his efforts for the movement, you know, nonviolent movement that he had, and had that march in Washington on 1963, where he brought thousands of people in town and 
We were able to bring down bags and bags and bags of sandwiches for some folks. And the very following year, we passed the Civil Rights Law. And then in 1965, they passed the Voting Rights Act. But then 1968, his life was taken violently, and that was extremely difficult. I remember the night so well on April 4th, 1968, and the people were in tears. We were all in tears. And then, when, you know, after a while, the sadness turned to frustration, and frustration turned to anger, and then uprising began that lasted for three full nights. A curfew was put into place. Bench Chili Bowl was the only place in town that was allowed to remain open during those three nights of curfew. That was a little bit scary because there was a lot going on outside. The neighborhood was literally destroyed. The businesses never reopened. Sons and daughters are out here still fighting for what we fought for more than 50 years ago basic human rights. Today, I'm impressed because the young people are doing it on their very own. Their conscience and their heart is taking them to the street because they know that this is not the right way to be. And not only that, but look at the diversity. And look where it is. It's in Washington. It's in Philadelphia. It's all over the country. It's all over the world. This has to have an impact. Ben's Chili Bowl is still up and running at their original location, open for takeout and delivery. They've even expanded to open several satellite locations across D.C. Thankfully, the core of Ben and Virginia's mission and so much of what made the Chili Bowl such a welcoming environment to everyone still exists today. I'm almost 87, but everybody that comes in the door after they've met me for 10 minutes call me mom. Unfortunately, I like being there. I used to go every day until the pandemic came into town. But I think people see us still as a community place. Although the the residents have changed, we still have that feeling of we know we can depend on Ben's. We know we can go to Ben's if we need help. We know Ben's is going to be open. I know it means a lot to me, especially if I want to go someplace. I want to know that they're going to be there. So we have struggled to stay open, but we are going to continue to do that. We're always open. While they're obviously a global icon, Ben's is still at heart a small, family-owned business. If you can't make it down to D.C. to get a few half-smokes for takeout, they have plenty of merch available online. We have links in our description. Check them out and show them your support. Thank you so much, and I look forward to visiting Ben's one day myself. I hope so. You know, you have this number. Let us know. I'd like to be there when you come. (laughs) I certainly will. So thank you so much, Virginia. I really appreciate your time. You're so welcome. Bye-bye. So remember those voices all the way at the beginning of the episode? We asked three of our regular DC contributors if they'd speak with me panel style about some of the best food, bars, and things to do in the district. We have Austa Sumvichian Clausen. I write about pretty much everything from brunch to date ideas to fun things to do in Washington, D.C. Tim Ebner. I'm a food and travel writer for Thrillist, as well as Eater and a bunch of other publications. And Danella Malik. I am a D.C.-based food blogger. And as far as the foodscape is concerned, my opinion is that it's the best city in America. 
All right, so I want to talk about restaurants first. I would love to hear about some of the places in the city that you guys really love, especially places that you feel exemplify what DC does well. So I immediately think of a newer restaurant named Melange. I think they're turning out some of the city's best burgers and fried chicken sandwiches. And what's really special about Melange is that DC is home to the largest population of Ethiopians outside of Africa. And the chef at Melange is of Ethiopian descent. And so he marries these classic dishes with Ethiopian flavors to make things like the National, which is a Doral Watt style fried chicken sandwich. And it's just like so to me, DC, right? This large Ethiopian population has really impacted the food space. And now we're getting really creative new dishes from it. Well, I think Anella hit the nail on the head. It truly is a city where there are just so many different styles of cuisine pulled from so many different countries. And the one that I've been gravitating towards recently has been immigrant food. And immigrant food is actually in downtown Washington, DC. It's just a couple blocks from the White House. And what's so cool about this space is it's from a really red hot chef right now, Chef Enrique Lamardo. He's Venezuelan, but he's also cooking in this kitchen, you know, Caribbean style food, food from the Middle East, from West Africa, from Southeast Asia. And actually, they're about to roll out with a new veggie bowl that's dedicated to Kamala Harris. And it actually pulls in some of the flavors from her two families' countries. It pulls in some of the curry flavors of India with like the jerk spice flavors of Jamaica. And it comes together in this bowl that I'm sure she'll probably be eating sooner or later. And to echo what you guys both said, I think that there's no signature food in DC. Like the signature food is almost like multiculturalism. Like the fact that there are these immigrants who are opening up restaurants that are so true to their culture. And then some people are also putting some really interesting spins on them. That's really great to see and something special about DC food culture for sure. Yeah, and that's a great point that Asta brought up. And Anil and Tim, I'm wondering what you think about that as far as DC, maybe not having one signature food. Maybe it's a combination of a lot of things. Yeah, you know, I do think that DC has such a proud and prideful immigrant community and so many diverse people. But Washington, D.C. is still Chocolate City, and it is still the place that African-Americans have always been here and been a part of this history of this city. And so to me, I think the food that probably exemplifies D.C. the most would be the half smoke, half pork, half beef sausage um, served at Ben's Chili Bowl to me as a kid was a staple food. And to me, as someone who's now in his mid-30s, is still the thing that I would come back to eating. That's interesting that you brought up the half-smoking, right, Chocolate City, Tim, because there's also all of this, I think, new food kind of culture that's being built in D.C. And it is so influenced by, I think, the Black population here, but also by, you know, various waves of immigration. Uber Eats released their data about the most ordered foods in D.C. And Roaming Rooster's Honey Butter Fried Chicken Sandwich was the number two dish (laughs) throughout D.C. Roaming Rooster is owned by two Ethiopian immigrants who are selling an American classic with great success. So now I want to ask you about bars. I have regrettably never gone out in D.C. in my adult life. And 
I don't know. I guess I'm picturing a lot of overworked, frustrated government workers just getting really drunk. Am I that far off there? <laughs> you know, I think the fun thing about DC bar culture is that you can see those kinds of people, but you can also see so many other different types of people. And we're all kind of like united for the night by alcohol. <laughs> There are places to dance. There's a great LGBTQ like bar culture there too. I'd say like the LGBTQ dive bar that I probably would frequent the most would be Trade. I think if you get there by midnight, then you can get a really good vodka special that's pretty much the vodka soda. But imagine like a 16 ounce glass and it's like 14 ounces of vodka and like they just spray a little bit of soda water on top and you're like pretty much set for the night. I can imagine that. I could taste it almost. Tim, what do you think? What are some of your favorite places to drink in D.C.? I think immediately of Fox and the Hounds and DuPont Circle. You literally order your drink and they hand you the sidecar of the soda that you then mix into your bourbon or your vodka or your gin. My favorite dive bar in Washington, D.C. has to be the Pug over on H Street. It's actually owned by a guy named Tony T. And he is a lifetime Washingtonian. It's a really decorated space. And it's somewhere, if you're from out of town visiting, I think it's the most D.C. bar there is in the entire city. The other one that I love is Dance Cafe, which literally has no windows to it. Definitely smells a little bit too. But the beauty of Dan's is that they give you the cocktails in little squeeze boxes. And so you literally come up to the bar, you order maybe a bourbon Coke, and it's going to be three quarters bourbon topped off with a little Coke. And then you just get to squeeze it into your mouth or other friends' mouths as you're drinking the night away. You've seen the tweets, I'm sure, that if you've drank from the squeeze bottles at Dan's Cafe, then you shouldn't be afraid of getting the COVID-19 vaccine. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love that. We can't talk about the dive culture without bringing up Showtime Lounge. You're only going to go there if you're going to drink like a PBR. And then on Sundays, they have this amazing, super unique house band called Granny and the Boys. And it's literally like three or four middle-aged men and then one granny who's on the keys. Amazing. <laughs> Tim talked a little about happy hour, and I think this is a valid question wherever you go. When you want to have an experience and you don't want to drink, where would you go? I mean, I'm the expert at this because my husband doesn't really drink. A couple options that I think are underrated. The first one is Anacostia Park. It's just over the river to the east and it's just very, very large. So there's ample space for exercising. You're going to see families grilling. Um, and there's parking and it's accessible from the highway. So it's one of our favorite picnic spots. So we love taking people there. Um, it's usually a surprise, right? They come to DC to see the monuments and they forget that this region is really beautiful as well. And I took my niece out for high tea when she came last year. And I didn't realize that DC had like a plethora of high tea options and she just loved it. What better experience than to go sit somewhere fancy and select your tea and your chocolates and your little sandwiches and your snacks and just kind of luxuriate for a while. Other places that are fun to go, well, one of my favorite activities of all time just as a person is picnicking. I always go to Meridian Hill Park to picnic. It's the best place to go just because of the optimal dog watching. There's also a drum circle that happens weekly. And fun, weird fact, 
Meridian Hill Park has the longest cascading fountain in North America. Anella, what, what do you think in, in terms of neighborhoods, not only just to stay, but if you're just, you know, walking around, what, what are some of your favorite neighborhoods? Oh, this is so hard. <laughs> so the thing about DC is that it's actually a relatively small city. And I think part of its charm is that each neighborhood really has such a distinct vibe. I live close to H Street, which is one of my favorites because it's just one long strip where you're going to get some great restaurants, bars and coffee shops in a few block radius. If you're looking for more quintessential DC and see like the beautiful townhomes and trees and all that kind of stuff, then I would go with probably DuPont Circle. There's plenty of amazing restaurants and bars and there's super cute cafes. There's Kramer's Bookshop, which is the best bookshop in the city, in my opinion. Um, and it's kind of a hub. So if you walk up Massachusetts, you're going to be kind of walking and seeing all the embassies. If you get on the red line, you can kind of transfer anywhere you want and see the rest of the city. Or I think Stanton Park is really beautiful. And walking to Eastern Market is a great activity for anyone, whether you're a local or you're bringing people around. Eastern Market has like a bunch of really awesome local sellers who are selling everything from like antiques and vintage clothing to home decor and food and original arts and crafts. And I think that those are really great places to be. You know, and something else I want to ask, and this is a really tough one, people coming to visit D.C., what is the one thing they should do? The first thing that came to mind was to go visit the African American History Museum. You could spend a month in that museum and not go across everything that you need to see. And the architecture of it is amazing, too. I think it's go to see the monuments at nighttime. I still, to this day, will get goosebumps standing on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and looking out over the mall. It's also really less crowded if you go at night and you can actually reflect and be with the city. Also, across the river in Anacostia, historic Anacostia, you have the Frederick Douglass House, which to me has literally the best view of the entire city. It's another place where you can sit, reflect, and gather your thoughts and truly take in the city, immerse it in all its history, all its politics, but also all of its people. I'm going to have to bring it back to food. I mean, I'd say there's a couple. You should get a half smoke. You should go to Ben's Chili Bowl and get one. And then I would also say that you have to get Ethiopian food. I guess shocked because I'm so spoiled, but when my friends come to visit, many of them are like, we don't have Ethiopian food in our cities and towns. And it's something you forget when you live here, that this is not widely available to many Americans, but it's such... I think, a treasure to bring them to. And there's so many options. And plus, so many of the Ethiopian options in D.C. are vegan or vegetarian friendly. So you should all follow Austa, Tim, and Anella on all of their social handles. We have links in our description, along with some of their selected Thrillist articles. Okay. One more quick break for us, then we'll come right back and wrap this whole thing up. Stick around. All right, so some exciting news I want to share before we go. Thrillist has a new podcast. It's a weekend guide to NYC. So every Thursday morning, we are dropping a two-minute audio guide to everything happening in New York City that weekend. It's a really fun way to find plans. Yes, even in the middle of winter, 
Yes, even in the middle of a pandemic. So subscribe wherever you listen. It's called Thrillist Weekend Guide to NYC. All right, so that does it for us. We want to thank all of our guests, producer Mia Fask and Jake Rasmussen. Jake also edited this episode and did a very nice job. Thanks. Special thanks to Megan Kirsch, Jim D'Amico, Brett Kushner, Emily Feld, and from iHeartRadio, Mangesh Harakudor. You made it to the end of the episode, so I will leave you with a very fun fact. Two presidents kept pet alligators in the White House, Herbert Hoover and John Quincy Adams. We don't really have time to go into this right now, so you'll have to Google it for yourself. Good luck with that, and I will see you next week. Bye.